Today, we have a very special episode on all business with Jeffrey Hazlett. I'm celebrating my 100th show and taking a look back, not look back, we're actually going to listen to some of those key moments of my favorite moments in the show. My team and I sit down and re-listen to every episode to bring you the top lessons learned over the last two years. This is the show that will give you a PhD in what to do in business and what not to do. It's like a little black book of business. Of course, we've had some phenomenal guests since starting the show like Jim Cook of Sam Adams, YouTuber Casey Ho, Kelly Leonard from Second City Theater and Second City Works at Famous Comedy Teams, and Casey Crane of Crane Communications and more. A lot of those we're going to cover here in a few minutes. However, we couldn't feature everyone on this show or it'd be a very, very long podcast. So I'd recommend checking out our iTunes page for more interviews. Also, visit the All Business page on iTunes if you'd like to hear the full interviews of any of our guests mentioned on this show. On that note, let's get started with All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. He's one of the world's most respected business experts, Jeffrey Hazlett. I want to take you behind the scenes on what's happening in business today. And whether you're on Main Street or Wall Street, we're going to find out the secrets behind their success. This is All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by Dunkin' Donuts. Hey, first guest up, Barbara Corcoran. I love Barbara Corcoran for a whole lot of reasons. One, beautiful gal, more importantly, beautiful entrepreneur. She's made millions in the real estate business, and now she's one of the hosts of Shark Tank. You see her. She's in there fighting against my good friend Damon and a whole bunch of others, and she comes out on top all the way because she knows what it takes to get back up. And that's one of the big hints that she has in this particular segment. I ask her what it takes to you know, for her to invest in an entrepreneur when she looks to invest in a business came from one of our fans, Trish Matson, And she said three things, three things. Now, the biggest one I thought by far was the fact you don't need to be a whiny baby. All right. If you get hit, you get back up. And I'm talking you get back up like a Rocky movie, not the second, third, fourth, fifth, the crappy ones. I'm talking about the first Rocky movie. You know where he gets hit and he goes down. He gets back up. He goes down. He gets hit and he gets back up again and keeps coming and keeps coming against Apollo Creed. You know what I'm talking about. That's an entrepreneur's life. And that's what this segment's about. Listen as Barbara Corkin tells you what it takes to get her attention to invest in your business. Trish Madsen um, asked this question, and I think she, I, she, I actually know what the business she's in. She's at Busy Lizzie uh, Bakery, so I'll, I'll throw that out there. Uh, mm. What are, they, they do a, a flourless bakery, which is really cool. What, mm. are the three yeah, top, what are the three top things you look for when considering whether or not to invest in an entrepreneur who's doing something that no one else in the country is doing? Of course, she's talking about their particular product. So what, what do you of look for? Of course. I'm sure that's not the case either. It's got it, it, to bakeries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I tell you whether it's been done a million times before or whether it's never been done before? I'm not looking at the business. I'm looking at the entrepreneur. And what I'm always looking for is the same old, same old. I'm looking for someone with super high energy, only because I've never seen anyone succeed who didn't have super high energy. So if yeah. you get someone who's lackluster on their feet, forget it. I'm out right away mentally the minute they start talking and I pick up their energy. I'm also looking for someone who looks the part. I remember getting a guy on Shark Tank, had high energy, had a great business, but he was in the shrimp business and he actually showed up on set with a dirty white apron on. That was like, but 
unbelievable to me. Mm. I was out the minute I laid eyes on him. Like, couldn't he have gotten a Just clean apron, a new apron? Yeah. 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 And then the third one, which I really should say the first one, is I'm watching to see how good they are at taking a hit. When someone takes a hit and they right, they're right back at you, you've got a great entrepreneur in front of you. When someone takes a hit and they take a while to feel sorry for themselves, quietly or publicly through moaning and groaning, they're never going to make it in business. The key yeah. quality to every one of my most successful entrepreneurs is, boy, they almost have a low IQ. They take a hit, you slam them down, <laughs> you can't keep them down, they come back up and say, hit me again. I mean, not literally, but yeah. figuratively. Right. And you know what? That's what I'm after because on those businesses, I'm making money on every one of them. When I have someone who goes on a powder puff or whatever that's called, you go off and feel sorry for yourself, oh my God, this is so unfair, forget it. That's someone who's never going to hit the finish line. Yeah, never, I, ever. I, I, I love that. Next up is Grant Cardone. Now, if you don't know Grant, he started off like a used car salesman or a car salesman and has rocketed to fame by being one of the best sales coaches there is in the world. In fact, he's got millions of followers. And he talks about manufacturing fame, how to become the celebrity in your field. And you don't have to be a mega star, but you have to be a star in the field of what you do and to present yourself as an expert because you need a following to make money. The more followers you you got more money you're going to be made not in terms of just likes on facebook i'm talking about people who know who you are and then recommend you to other people they are you are the person they think of the poster child for whatever problem they want fixed and if they know who that is and you're that person that's how you be you know able to make money and that's what he talks about so if you're not trusted it won't matter how good your product is or the price is grant thinks you have to go for fame in order to get fortune. Let's listen to what he has to say about it. I always tell a lot of people, you can't have fame and fortune, pick one. But you know, you're one of those guys now get gets both. But I always tell people, start with fortune first, because if you do a good job, you'll get the fame. And that's kind of what you're pursuing a little bit now, isn't it? I mean, it's okay, which is okay. I think it's great. Yeah, oh no, hey, no doubt about it. I mean, I, again, like I am a very transparent, authentic, I am who I am all the time, whether yeah. it's on stage or an interview or at my house on the weekends. I'm the same guy all the time. So yeah. I am literally, and you, you're the only person that's ever actually uh, picked this up on a, in an interview. I am manufacturing fame right now. Yeah. I am manufacturing a celebrity. I, this is something I wish I would have known. I would have flipped it, uh, Jeffrey. I would have flipped it and gone for the celebrity status before the fortunes. Mm-hmm. I don't regret the way it turned out. Why, why would you do that? I mean, but by the way, I, I've done the same thing. You know that. I mean, yeah. and everybody knows I've done that. I did the exact same thing. Why would you do it? Yeah. Why would you do it? Why would you flip that? Because I think that the, the, the biggest, the way I did it, okay, look, I, I grew up poor. I grew up, my dad died when I was 10, mm-hmm. and I wanted a dad. I mean, really, really yeah. I'm still driven today, but I wanted somebody to help me. Mm-hmm. And probably probably why I help people so much today is I want to – I told my mom when I was 16, I'm going to get rich one day, and I'm going to be an uncle to a bunch of people. I'm going I'm to help other people. <laughs> I'm going to be an uncle to people that weren't – like because I was resentful that my uncles didn't help me. Yeah. And and um, I just wanted somebody to kind of guide me along, you know, and, yeah. and not just a book and not just an article and not just, you know, a TV show. I wanted real people to touch me. And so, look, I didn't know. I, I was brought up where you don't get known. Don't toot your own horn. Yep. Be seen and not heard. Fly under the radar. Um, don't get too much attention. It's wrong. Yeah. 
All that data is incorrect. That's what's keeping people trapped and in the middle class. You have to get known. You have to find celebrity status. You need fame. If people don't know you, they're not going to buy from you. If people don't know you, they won't buy their books from you. If people don't know you, bottom line is if they don't know you, they won't trust you, and it won't matter how good your products or your price is. Yeah. You know, and it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, mega fame either. It could be just really good and everybody knowing what the hell you are, whether you're a real estate agent or you're an accountant or whatever, but getting that fame of knowing who you are and being that, I don't know, you call it a subject matter expert to some extent. Everyone should become a celebrity. Yeah. Like, don't even mix words. <laughs> become the celebrity in your space. A celebrity is basically somebody that has a following, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't have a following, what are you? Hey, next up is Gail Simmons, the chef and food critic. And I tell you what, I really like this because she said, don't kid yourself just because you like something doesn't make you the expert. Here was a person who was out writing, loved food, but that didn't make her a chef. And then she said, you got to start all over and go be the expert at it. You know, not one of many. It takes hard work because it's hard. I've said that many, many times. And this is a real example of how she got her start in the food business. And now she's, I mean, everywhere, television shows, in magazines, everywhere you look, you see Gail Simmons and talking about food and what made it you know, so good was that she went back to the basics and she became an expert. So if you like, if you want to be a good speaker, you got to do more than just talk. You got to know your subject and you got to be immersed in it and you got to live it. It's got to be a part of you. It's got to be part as we learned earlier from our good friend, Beth Comstock at GE, it's got to be in your DNA. And you know, that's an important thing for us to keep in mind. So listen to what Gail Simmons is cooking up for us. Yeah. I, as I said, studied in college and started writing restaurant reviews for my college paper. And when I graduated from college, all of my friends seemed to know exactly what they wanted to do. Some of them wanted to be lawyers or doctors or get MBA. And I had no idea what I wanted to do. All I knew was that I loved to eat, but I really didn't realize that that could be a full-time job. Um, I graduated, I moved home to my parents' basement. It was a dismal little while. In my life, my parents were panicked and I was directionless. But I knew I loved to travel, I loved to write, and I loved to eat. And finally, through some coaching and advising from friends and, and mentors, I realized that that was something I could do full-time and that could actually be a job if I was smart about it. So I went to work. Um, my first job was as an intern at a local magazine. Uh, I grew up in Toronto, Canada, and they have an amazing city magazine there called Toronto Life, and I got an internship there. And when I was there, I was doing all sorts of things for all parts of the magazine. You know, it's a general city magazine, like New York Magazine, for example, or Los Angeles Magazine. And um, I found myself drawn to the food critic and the food editor time and time again, and would follow them around and kind of realized that was what I was most interested in. I loved to cook. I loved to eat out. They let me write small things after a little while, and then from there I went to work for a newspaper, and the same thing happened. I was following around the food critic, following around the food editor. Finally, they said, look, Gail, if this is what you want to do, if you really want to write about food, if that's your passion, you got to go learn and study food, because anyone can write. That's what your editor's for. You need to become an expert, because I, I know that you like food and you like to eat, but that doesn't mean you know anything about it, which is very humbling. At 23 years old or 22 years old, you don't realize that you have to differentiate yourself and you can't just, well, I like television. Let's go make television. You know, it was a rude awakening. And so I did just that. I picked up and packed up, moved to New York City, went to culinary school, enrolled in full-time professional culinary school, 
learned how to cook, became a professional cook, went and worked in kitchens where I did the hardest work I've ever done in my life. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's tough that, work. That's tough work. It, it really is. It's extraordinary yeah. work. Yeah. It is hard work. It is grueling. It is manual labor until you are at the top of your career where you're actually the one doing the creating. But for the first six, eight, ten years of a cook's life, you're just putting your head down and executing someone else's vision. And, and you have so, to pay your um, you have to pay your dues there too, don't that's you? That's right. Yeah. That's right. You know, it takes it takes a long time to be a chef. People throw the term chef around very lightly. People love to call me a chef, and I have to tell you, Jeff, I'm not a chef. Mm-hmm. A chef is the leader of a kitchen. A chef, the word chef is a French word for boss. So to be a chef, to me, you need to be in charge of a kitchen, cooking every day. And I certainly am not in charge of any kitchen, but my own home kitchen. Thank goodness. <laughs> Our good friends at Dunkin' have been with us for almost 100 episodes, and coffee and donuts inspired some of my favorite show moments. Beth Comstock told us how she picks up her Dunkin' coffee every morning to start her day. Hey, let me take a quick break. Did you know that Thomas Edison founded GE in 1892? Well, nearly 70 years later, another entrepreneur founded a company that helps us Keep energized. That's in 1950, the American entrepreneur William Rosenberg founded the Dunkin' Donuts franchise. I pick up my Dunkin' Espresso every morning to help me keep invigorated because all business with Jeffrey Hazlett and America runs on Dunkin'. Do you drink coffee, Beth? I love Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> Do you like the coffee or the donuts? I love the coffee. <laughs> yeah. It's my daily. I have a, I have a, I have a large Dunkin' Donuts yeah. coffee do you, with milk every day. Milk? You put milk in or cream? I like yeah, cream. Yeah, I do. I like I milk. Yeah, I like it. I guess you can say Dunkin' keeps the lights on at GE. Penn Jillette also expressed his love of Dunkin', and he isn't even a caffeine drinker. He picks up decaf and the occasional donut before shows, and we even introduced him to some of their newer products like espresso. So let me take a break here for a second because I got to have sure. a little bit of coffee and and I got a great sponsor that's Dunkin' Donuts and we all know America runs on on donuts and I am running on Dunkin' right now. What's your favorite coffee, Penn? Well, you know that's that's the thing that's nuts. You you, you when I would I was doing a, a radio show one morning and they brought in this. I only drink decaffeinated coffee. Really? Uh, and uh, oh, yeah. that that that, that's, that surprises me, man. <laughs> Uh, but you know, I'm a, I'm a real nutty, no drug guy. So there's yeah, no I, caffeine. I, I do know that you you don't like any of that. Now, a lot of people would think, uh, hey, here's a guy who wears red nail polish on one of his nails. He's got to be, and he's got a ponytail. You got to be into drugs, but you're not. And uh, they brought in, you know, they brought me in a cup of coffee, and it was just so good. And I was expected to say, you know, this is one of those, you know, five dollar cups of coffee. Yeah. And they had just poured because they had a camera there, a web camera. They poured the uh, Dunkin' Donuts coffee into a regular mug and it's really good doesn't it, it win good. like every taste test or something oh it, it, it wins great stuff and not only that I, I'm, I just started drinking coffee a few months ago and I drink I like the espressos and I drink like you know four to eight double espressos a day I like Are Dunkin Donuts doing that yeah sure you can get them you're dang right. You can get espressos? Yes, of course you can. Okay. Yeah. I'm going this afternoon. I'm Go. going this afternoon. <laughs> However, it's my good friend Barbara Corcoran who had the best Duncan moment. She pointed out that if you own a Duncan business, you must be successful because who could res- resist their delicious donuts? Let me ask you about the people, though, because just like you're standing up at Shark Tank and you're doing that with you know those people about their businesses, you got to do that with people, too, don't you? 
You mean in in the real estate brokerage? Yeah, in the, in the brokerage business. You got to tell people, look, you're not cut out for this. I mean, uh, let me tell you something. The key in the real estate brokerage field, I believe, are two things. One, you got to be able to spot talent. And when you think about it, the great majority of the people that come into real estate brokerage have either done nothing else because they've raised their family, women returning to the workforce. That's a major recruiting ground. And then the second is gentlemen who have done something else failed at it and I want to try their hand at real estate. Not the easiest hiring pool. So I think the most key talent, if you're going to run a brokerage firm and build a business that way, is you have to be able to spot talent without a lot to go on. You don't have a sales record. So how do you know this guy or this gal is going to sell well when when they could most notably not sell well because nine out of ten people that go into the business never really make a living. Well, I think so that how applies, do you find that out? Well, I yeah. think that applies to every business. I don't think, I mean, it could be just as good in a oh, Dunkin' possibly. Donuts franchise as it could be anywhere. I mean, so... Really? Gee, I thought if you buy a Dunkin' Donuts, I love those damn donuts. I thought for sure you were destined for success. Who could resist them? Boy, we're already working in a shameless plug for my sponsor, which is awesome. Thank you for doing that already. Oh, that's so. right. I had two donuts this morning, ironically. I had a photo shoot in my office early this morning, and they fortunately brought a big jug of that delicious Dunkin' Donut coffee, which I always <laughs> like. They never change it. And then two big bags of those donuts. I had a jelly donut and a sugar-coated one. I love them. My well, two favorites are in the bag. I'm going to get this is two commercials towards Dunkin' already. There we go. And I'm having some... <laughs> I'm, actually, I'm actually... Uh, I do charge them. Absolutely. There's no things. You know, America runs on well, Dunkin' and, and, and this show runs on money. <laughs> exactly. Uh, okay. Donuts, they're helpful, but I tell you, it runs on money. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Hey, from Gail Simmons in the kitchen, we go to Gene Simmons the devil himself at kiss. And so this is a really interesting talk. I apologize for the quality on the audio that you're about to hear, but he was on a remote phone, but I wanted to get this interview because Gene is one of the most prolific business people there is. He sounds a lot like Donald Trump when you listen to him in terms of his bravado, but a lot of bravado because he can back it up because he is one of the most successful licensing agents, uh, businesses in the world with over 3,000 products, I believe, uh, they've done with KISS. And so he talks a lot and he makes a very controversial statement. He says, learn everything you need to succeed and that probably includes learning English. Because if you want to do business in this country or any other country, you should learn to speak English. And I thought that was a very provocative statement. So we're going to listen to what he has to say about that and what it means to be a Qadarish, which is Hebrew for shark. And he is definitely a shark. And you can take that to the bank. And you'll learn this from our good friends at KISS with Mr. Gene Simmons. Remember that Remember that movie, The Replacements with Keanu Reeves and, and, and Gene Hackman? And Gene Hackman turned to him and said, winners always want the ball. Uh, yeah. Winners always want the ball. At what point in your career did you realize that you could do this better than, say, the hired managers that you had? I was uh, eight and a half years old, and I came to America, and one of the first lessons of Americana were some mean-spirited kids who were playing marbles on the... Uh, on a block away from where I was staying in my aunt's house, my aunt Magda. And they actually said something on there, I forget, what are you stupid? Can't you speak English? And it was actually a lesson learned. And I talk about that in the book. Yeah, you're right. People here think you're an idiot if you can't speak English. And you're talk and I'm saying this as an immigrant. So first what I did was borrowed a marble, and in Israel it's like a national sport, and I took all their marbles. I was much better than they were. No, 
I, I wasn't able to speak English at the point, and no, I'm not stupid, and one day I'm going to make you all work for me. But first and foremost, I needed English-speaking skills, and people who come here from other countries better wake up to the fact that it doesn't matter how proud you are of your culture and your religion and your language, you will either learn to speak English well, and the better you do it without an accent, the more money you'll make. Well, that's, the, or, that's, that's the English of business, right? Or the English is the, is the language is the of language business. language of business. Always and on the day that Mandarin takes over, you can bet your bottom dollar I'm going to learn to speak Mandarin and yeah. fluently. Yeah, but, you know, I don't know that it is going to take over because even when I've been in China and Beijing, Xiamen, uh, Shanghai, we always in the meetings, and even though I know a little bit of Chinese myself, we always speak English. I mean, that's always been. Ni hao. Yeah, ni hao. There you go. It's very good. Very good. I'm doing now, well. By the Thank way, you. it's worth noting the airline industry, no matter where it is in the work, if Mexican airlines and Singaporean airlines are flying into Beijing, they have to communicate with the air traffic controller. They will all communicate mm -hmm. only in English. Mm -hmm. It is English. the language of the world. And by the way, I don't have a horse in this race. I wasn't born in America. English is my third language, not my first. Yeah. Next up is uh, that bar makeover king, John Taffer. And I ask him, what's the key to your business? And he talks about a number of different things. But one of the things we spent a lot of time on was the butt funnel. Well, now what is that? He'll tell you. It's a little thing he designed, but it, it's actually, we use this every single day in sales. We use this in every single way in our interaction with people. That is creating opportunities to be able to have people make a decision, to get them to commit. And that's what the butt funnel's about. And he gives us a good example of that. And that's the way I think we need to look at in terms of creating sales every single day is where, where can you turn on the faucet, turn off the faucet? I call these constriction points. And wherever you can find where those that funnel narrows down, that's a key decision-making point. And that we have to learn those in our business every single day. What are those things that, that take that funnel down to a decision? To, to make them move, make cause some dissidence, you know, something to move them off the post, either positively or negatively. Now, that's Fester's theory of cognitive dissidence, by the way, if you want to look that up and start to study that. But say something, do something to make people commit. And once they start to commit, then you've, you've got them moving where you need them to move, even if it's moving away, because you sometimes you want to know people uh, that aren't going to buy from you so you can quit wasting your time. And that's what we learn with John Taffer. I love John. I love to watch his show because he's a straightforward shooting kind of guy, a blue-collar guy, just like most of us out there, in terms of who's made a living doing what he's doing, and he's really good at it. So let's listen in to John. I saw a show here recently, and there's a couple of things. I, I, I always pick up something, and I saw one of your shows recently, and you actually did a diagram of the – of the of the bar itself and drew it out and said this has got to go here and this has got to go here and then you started talking about your 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 infamous butt funnel which i just yes I, talk about the butt funnel i love this is like my favorite part of the show is the butt funnel <laughs> well, a butt funnel is all it is is a tight opening where people get close together you look at each other's eyes, and, and it creates social interaction, which, uh, you know, the bar business is all about. Yeah, and for big guys like us, we're doing a lot of, you know, we're doing a lot of rubbing as we go through that, too. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Hence the butt funnel. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just love it. But you, you're talking about a constriction point, which you force people together. I mean, it's the same thing in sales. I mean, you want to get to that kind of butt funnel or, or sales funnel to, to get through the, the get through the whole piece. I mean, that's the end. You want to you yeah. create sales. What? Uh, you know, yeah, you know uh, go ahead. A, good, a big part of sales is conviction, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, curiosity and conviction. Yeah. And when you, when you choose to go through that butt funnel, you have made a conviction that you are going to do that. So. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, you're going <laughs> over to the, the other process. side. Going to the other side. Okay, next up is another good friend, and a lot of these are friends of mine. That's the way it works in the C-suite. You get to know a lot of different people over the years. I first met this uh, chairperson of a publicly traded company, and we're talking about Christy Hefner. When she was the head of Playboy Enterprises, I met her when I was the chief marketing officer of Eastman Kodak. And we met right as I was leaving that company, but I was so impressed with her. We've kept in touch all these years. And I wanted to ask her about working with family. I've got a couple of kids that work with me, and I thought she had some really, really good advice, personal advice for those of you who are thinking about getting into business with family members. And I thought it was some of the best business at all, uh, best advice for business that I've ever seen for people who are in a family business. So I want you to listen, because here she worked for her father, but was also a publicly traded company. And sometimes you're going to get criticized for being in certain leadership positions, and you've got to hear what she has to say about it, because it's some tough love and some good, good advice. I remember once speaking to a group of uh, mostly sons of YPO people and somebody asking me, did I think he should go into you know, the family business and saying, look, I don't think there's one answer to that question. It's very personal. But I would say this. If it's going to bother you that someone somewhere thinks that the reason you're in this role is because you're the son of the founder, then you shouldn't do it because there'll always be someone somewhere who thinks or even says that. Right. What I came to believe is that the vast majority of people would judge me based on what I did with the opportunity. And the people who couldn't get past how I got the opportunity were people whose opinions didn't matter that much. Liberty Tax has been a valued all-business partner throughout the last 100 shows. And if you're looking for a great read, check out my friend John Hewitt's new book, I Compete. How My Extraordinary Strategy for Winning Can Be Yours. John is the founder and CEO of Liberty Tax Service, one of the top tax preparation franchises with over 4,000 locations nationwide. I Compete is a must-read, and if you're a regular listener of the show, it's relatable to any business industry. I think this is John's second book and certainly his best, so Ask for a copy of it today. Next up is Piers Morgan. Now, you know him as the winner on the first season of Celebrity Apprentice. That's where I got to know him and then um, interacted with him over the next uh, six years or so. And then, of course, he went on to lead um, a show on CNN. And after a 1,000 shows, uh, he lost the show, primarily over the gun debate. And when we say a gun debate, he was all for gun control. And he says this issue actually got him fired because he was a Brit coming on and standing up for what he believes in. But yet, it's tough to do when you're not a citizen of this country. And do you really have a voice in it? And he comes to find out, no, he doesn't. You can certainly talk about it, say things, do what you'd like to do. But quite frankly, you're not a citizen of this country. And I took uh, umbrage with that because of 
his position on that. It's not my position. Uh, I'm very, very clear about my position in this particular case. And, and we all have our own position. That's what makes us Americans, because we have the right to do these things, and it's given to us in the Constitution. And certainly the right to free speech we give to uh, citizens of this country, and we actually give it to people who are not citizens of this country. So, but... This is what was interesting. He came out and said that he actually got fired and, uh, from taking a stand on this particular issue, and he would switch it. And he'd basically say that, like Americans, Brits is the same way, but uh, for Americans, we don't like to be told what not to do. And so it would be a much better position if you'd lean forward into it and talk about safety rather than anti this or anti that. So listen in. I think it's a lesson for us in business. You can be vocal on any issue, but one of the best things you could probably do for your own business and for your own image and, and, and to advance the cause, whether you're selling something or educating people, is to lean into it and educate rather than be against something. And I think that's a valuable lesson that we learned right here on All Business. Well, I, I certainly think that the at CNN, for example, uh, I signed a four-year deal with them, and I, I served out that pretty well all of it. Um, and I thought it was, it was a great show, by the way. I, well, I, you, I, I, listen, I, I well, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Well, but you I, stepped I into some time. big shoes. I did, you know, I did yeah. 1,250 shows. So from well, my point of view, I, I, I really enjoyed that and yeah. had uh, interviewed some of the great people in the world. And, yeah. you know, I have no regrets about it. But I do think that probably the gun debate, which I became so personified with after Sandy Hook and Aurora in particular, yeah. um, I think it did polarize me in a way that made it quite difficult for the network. And I'm sure that part of their thinking when it came to whether we should continue with the show or not was, well, I know it was, was, you know, yeah. do we want to keep annoying a lot of our of our viewers with this British guy telling them that their laws are wrong. And I totally got that. Yeah. Um, you know, I understood that that was a problem for a network and that maybe I was better off having the debate outside of somewhere like CNN, which tends to be pretty straight down the middle on news. And I totally accepted that. I have no regrets. I had a great time there. And it's what it was. But, you know, I, I get a lot of people, particularly in L.A., and New York. Oh, uh, sure you would. Yeah. Like a lot of people yeah. came up to me who really liked the fact that I ran with that debate and wasn't afraid to call out the, the pro-gun lobby, which to me is a pretty uh, pernicious lobby. It's a group you know, where you have this weird situation where the NRA is basically financed by gun manufacturers. And so every time there's a tragedy, the NRA leadership comes out and says, if only everybody else had had a gun, then they wouldn't have happened. And so yeah, they sell more guns for the yeah. people financing yeah, but so Pierce, it, the Pier- It's a pretty vicious circle, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It, it, well, it can be. But at the same time, let's, go, let's get into every other lobby, because I used to be a lobbyist years yeah, yeah. ago, that, you know, the health insurance, health care is funded yeah. by the insurance same companies thing. and so forth and so on. So yeah. the money's going to follow the money. So that, that regardless of that. But, yeah. you know, I got to tell you, it was, regardless of whether you, where you stood on the position, it was good television. Hmm. It was, I thought it was. It was. It was yep. some of it. I, mean, I can't remember that one nut you had on one time. It was just he was way over the top, and I yeah. was embarrassed. <laughs> I can't remember the guy's name, but I'm sure you remember him. Yeah, uh, Alex Jones. He it, was a right wing conservative uh, it, yeah, radio well, host. Yeah, it, it was. He was. It was just. I was going. Oh my gosh, where'd they dig this guy up from? And, you know. <laughs> I mean, I, I, look, I, mean I, I don't want to debate the issue like yeah. you said, but I do think the the key thing that I would do differently if I did it again, I wouldn't make it a debate about gun control. I would make it a debate about gun safety. I think that Americans 
instinctively recoil from the word control, right. just as we British people yep. uh, do. I think the word safety is a much less aggressive term. And I think if really the debate was simply framed in how do we make America safer with the sheer volume of guns in circulation, you'd get a lot more people on both sides calming down a bit. And I, you know, I'm hoping to make a guns documentary movie this year um, playing into that theme, I think, of just safety. Okay, my next big segment is from Beth Comstock. Now, Beth is the vice chairwoman or vice chair of GE, largest company in the world, unbelievable company. Known Beth for many, many years as a fellow CMO. She, she used to be at NBC, was an executive there and worked her way up, got tapped into GE and when that was bought out by GE and then is now the vice chairperson of that company. Now, you think about a big company, it's not always better because when you're big, you can't move fast. But here's a company that reinvents itself all the time. And I wanted to talk to her about innovation and reinvention. I guess that's the best way to be able to describe it because that's what they've done at GE. 130-year-old company, yet they keep coming back and keep coming back. And she talks about what it's like to have that baked into their DNA and how a company can connect the dots. I love this, what she talks about in terms of oh, the whole idea of how they step and repeat the ideas because they can connect it from one place to another and learn from one in order to place it into another division, another product, another whole new idea. Listen on as Beth Comstock takes us to school. Do you find it tough or challenging to be innovative in such a big traditional company i and but at the same time i don't know i would call you traditional although you know for 130 plus years i mean you're you're you know you were founded the same time you know that george eastman founded kodak in, in that era of of innovation and, and it was different you know does that carry forth today is it is it is it really an innovative company it has to be i mean i don't think you get to be 130 years old to what you're saying if, if your company's not doesn't know how to change and know how to harness innovation and if you can't do that you don't live so i think there is a there is that baked into the dna it doesn't mean you always get it right it doesn't mean you always listen to things it doesn't mean you're not sometimes too bureaucratic so i have actually found this has been a great platform to be creative what what i love about it and perhaps it's just my one of the, the purchase i have is is um is interesting for me because you can connect dots and i think that's where a lot of creativity happens so i can sit here and say well here's what's happening in energy in transportation meaning you know air and rail here's what's happening in healthcare. wow there's some interesting things so 10 years ago that's what we did when we said hey technology the industries that we're in want more energy efficient technology but they don't want to go broke having it it gave birth to what we called eco-imagination, which was a huge way to um, create innovation, new product offerings, uh, drive a brand from a new perspective. And so that's the benefit of the kind of job I have. I can see across industry and see where things are more alike than different. Hey, you're getting swamped by emails. I know I was. I was spending hours and hours sorting out what's important and what's not. I was in the very same spot as you until I found SaneBox. That's right, S-A-N-E Box. SaneBox intelligently sorts your emails so you can deal with the most important ones right away. I love this product. I call it my secret weapon. I tell everybody about it. Uh, check out this time saver that gives me hours a day to spend growing my business by going to www.sanebox.com 
forward slash Hazlet. H-A-Y-Z-L-E-T-T, and I'll give you some free time on ZaneBox. Hey, next up is um, something I really want to spend a little bit more time on because it talks about business culture and job and morals. I'm talking about John Lefevre. Now, John is the author of a book, and he was author of the famous, wildly famous Twitter account called Gold Overheard and Goldman Sachs Elevator. And if you remember this, it had some pretty decadent stuff, some really crappy stuff that people would say in a what was a Goldman Sachs elevator. And of course, you know, he was talking about bankers behaving badly and, and the lessons that he learned from that. And he does it without apology. And that's what I found very, very, um, I don't know, disturbing. You know, it's not just a few bad apples. It's it's very pers- pervasive in times of the in, in in terms of the entire banking industry and for what some of these guys did. And it was the one time I actually wish the guy was in the studio so I could punch him in the face. He, he talked about the the times in which they would take women out with them on these um, junkets that they would do or the you know entertainment they would do, and they would use them like tethered goats. He actually said that tethered goats. This guy got a daughter. He talks about tethered goats. You know what I'm talking about. It's a scene in Jurassic Park where they tether the goat in order to bring him for bait. That's what he was talking about, what they did with women. And so I want you to listen to this clip of this guy and then and put it out of your mind because that's what I wanted to do after I heard it. You know, culture is important to business, and you have to learn to where you draw the line. And you shouldn't let the culture be corrupted in on order to close a sale or – and, yeah, anyway. you Give it some thought. Listen to the clip. Yeah, and certainly it's it, it, it's a cliche, and obviously the, the idea of, of bankers paying badly is is a, a well-spread cliche. But again, and this has come up quite frequently. Um, I guess I can I can come back to the, the lessons, but yeah, um, the it, what's what's uh, come up here is the idea that uh, this is just about a few rotten apples. Well, no. We've heard these stories before. But my point, and I think you would agree with me, is the vantage point that I'm speaking from, which is. Sitting in the middle of the bond syndicate, you know, in the in the syndicate desk, you're in the middle of the world. So I work above the Chinese wall. I work with M&A bankers. I work with traders. I work with buy side clients, so hedge funds, and I work with sell side clients, you know, blue chip companies, General Electric, Ford, AIG, etc. And then I do deals with every bank on Wall Street. And so from this vantage point, I'm basically saying the culture that I experienced and saw is pervasively deviant and, yeah. and thoroughly corrupt. And yeah, so it's, it's not, a, it's not an exception. What you saw and what you wrote about was not an exception. This is stuff that happened every single day. Yeah, and, yeah. and if we didn't get involved in these kind of antics that, again, were certainly unethical or often uh, illegal, we would almost get punished or we would fall behind. So if there was a hedge fund... Yeah, but that still, but that still doesn't with, make it right. I mean, seriously. I mean, it, you know, breaking the, breaking the rules... Um, Lying, stealing, cheating, whatever you want to call it, that still doesn't make it right, even if that's the culture. And that's, you know, that. No, of course. That's where I find fault. Hey, next up is my good friend, Pendulette. And I do call my good friend. We don't see eye to eye. In fact, that's how we got to meet each other. We were on both on stage at an event in Las Vegas where we're both kind of part of a keynote panel along with a couple of other celebrities on stage, Adam Crow and a few other folks. And we went after each other a little bit on stage. It was a good debate in a very friendly way, but yet we were at opposing views because he and I don't see eye to eye on everything because 
certainly his religious views are different than mine, but I like this guy. He's a very intelligent guy. And as a result, after we got off stage, he goes, hey, I like you. And I said, I like you too. And we should get together for dinner. Now, when I'm in Vegas, I typically get together with Penn before his show, have a little a little meal, break a little bread, and we talk over business. And I've called on him. He's called on me when he was on Celebrity Apprentice. I showed up with a check for 25000 to help out his charity. So there's lots of different things that we can do for one another. He gives some really good advice talking about preparing for the worst. Now, as a business owner, we always think through the great, great opportunities, the good things that are going to come as a result of our work or a result of what we do or how we sell it or how we think the business is going to be, you know, how we move from rags to riches and we most always concentrate on the riches. And he likes to focus on what's the worst that could happen. And then if he gets comfortable with that, he moves ahead. So listen to, I think, one of the best segments on on our show has been with Pendulette, and it's not pulling a rabbit out of his hat, but he's just pulling good advice to give you some great advice about preparing for the worst. Listen in. But Teller has always said that uh, his favorite quality that I have is I focus completely on the worst case scenario. What's the worst that can happen here? And then I prepare everything for that. And I assume we can take this hit, and if we can take this hit, we'll go ahead. Yeah, so once you uh, make just, the decision, I'm going to, here's the worst that could be, and it's okay, we're willing to do it. Anything above yeah, that's just, gravy, right? I mean, you heard me say this earlier the aristocrats. I lose 250 grand, and I've wasted three years working on this. Can I do that? Sure, let's go. Mm-hmm. The hardest one of those was in 1982. Teller and I were very successful. We were working Renaissance festivals. We were working carnivals. We were starting to break into the cruise ship market, and we were doing some industrial corporate shows. And we were making uh, more than our dads had made mm-hmm. in their lives. I mean, yep. that was a jail guard. Yep. Uh, making a middle class living. We were doing exactly what we wanted. We were really proud of our work, and uh, we had decided that that was our life. And then one day I took Teller aside and said, you know, uh, we're, we're 30 now. Uh, you know, we're in our early 30s, our late 20s, I guess we were. Um, we can keep this. At this time, we did all the business. Teller wrote yeah, all the you were doing. you were doing everything. You were managing the checkbook, or probably Teller was managing oh, did, the checkbook. Or no, did, no, I did, all the, I did all the bookkeeping. Did you really? I, see, the, I would have thought Teller. I would have thought the books are still in our business managers in all of my handwriting. Do you do you still sign every check? Do you sign the checks? Uh, No, I don't. I do not. Huh? You see, I Uh, know I've always kept this this premise, and I found out Oprah did this, and and someone in my family always takes care of that. So we have that's probably the wise way to do it, but I don't. Mm -hmm. So I said to Teller, if we're going to go for a theater audience, for a slightly larger audience, we should do it now. I said, we have in our business under a hundred grand, but we have about 80 grand. If we turn down all the work we've got, all the Renaissance festivals, all the corporate shows, all the stuff we've been doing for a few years and worked so hard to get, if we say no to all of those and just do little theater shows that we produce ourselves, we have a chance of 
that catching on and moving into the theater market instead of the you know carnival corporate market. I suggest we take our 80 grand and we roll the dice and we take two and a half years and see if we can get the reviews and build up and start to do this. And I said, it's gonna be really scary because we're used to having checks coming in and now checks are gonna be going out and there's no way we'll do it in less than a year. And we probably can't do it in two and a half, but I believe if we, after two, go back to, the, to what we're comfortable with, we can build back up our business and get back here. You wanna give it a shot. And I said, here's the money we will lose. Here's the years we will lose. Here's how long it'll take to get back to where we are. Tony had a long meeting about that, decided, okay, let's give it a try. And then we went. And what's really funny about this is that Teller believed my plan completely. <laughs> but a year into my plan, I went, oh, no, 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 no. And I started calling all the places. <laughs> oh, geez. So we had said no and said, can we, can we get in? Can we, can we get in? It was, it was too late to book them. Yep. And, and, you know, son of a gun, two years almost to the day, we opened off Broadway. Taking you behind the scenes of what's happening in the business world, Jeffrey Hazlett hosts All Business, brought to you by Dunkin' Donuts. Over the last 99 shows, we've learned some great business lessons and a lot of personal ones, too. Thank you for joining with me and sticking with us. We've got some great topics coming up this year, so don't tune out yet. So also, if there's any topic you'd like us to cover, a business leader that you want to hear from, let us know by leaving a review on iTunes. That really helps us a lot. Or reach out to me on social media. I respond to you. You know that. Uh, I love hearing from you. And the more engagement we get from our audience, the better that we can make this show. Also, check out our new website by going to all-business.hazlet.com. So all-business.hazlet.com. We'll we'll be posting some exclusive behind-the-scenes content. So we've got some new things that are coming out as part of that website to give you a little bit more background, a little bit more stuff. So thanks again for tuning in to us here on All Business with Jeffrey Hazel on cbsplay.it, iTunes, and everywhere else that you can listen to us. And don't forget, tell a friend. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.